Hi, my name is Britt Stiles. I'm a member of Providence Community Church and I've been a member since August. And I have a story to tell. In 1994, I had uh, become addicted to crack cocaine. Uh, what caused the addiction was um, rejection. Uh, my girlfriend had decided not to marry me after she had our son and uh, I spiraled out of control. I talked myself into robbing a convenience store to get money to uh, buy drugs to commit suicide. And um, while this was happening, I turned myself in after I robbed the convenience store. The Lord had come to me while I was sitting in the back of the squad car telling me that I needed to confess this, and I did and it turned out into a 15-year sentence at TDC. But the key thing was, was that um, I bought the drugs to commit the suicide and smoked all the drugs up and woke up with the uh, pipe in one hand and the lighter in the other hand the next morning and uh, <clears throat> asked myself, what have I done? Time in prison allowed me to commit my life to God and Jesus Christ and um, after that, uh, I began to study the Word of God and see that the promises in it were beneficial to my life. He changed my life almost instantly after I turned myself in from robbing the convenience store. He told me that he would be with me throughout the time of the trial. Now I'm married to Mama Stiles, the love of my life, and uh, she is a great inspiration to me. She is an answer to prayer. One of the scriptures that I have um, that inspired me most and uh, helped me through my time in prison was Psalms 40, uh, 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. This was the rock of Christ, and he has restored my life. I had lost everything, my son, uh, relationship with my son. Now um, I have a relationship with my son, and uh, I am doing good. I have been clean from crack cocaine almost 22 years, and uh, every day is a struggle, but I make it through with Jesus Christ. He has changed my life so much that I look back at what was and what is now and see the difference as in night and day. I could not have made the trip along this way um, without his help. Having been restored, uh, I married Mona in May of night, uh, 2010 and we've been married six years. Um, he has given me two daughters and two sons, six grandchildren, and um, I have more now than I could ever ask for. I'm happier than I could ever be, and I could not have achieved this without Jesus Christ in my life. I thank God every day for being able to wake up again and see a new day and share my testimony with others. Uh, I work at Dallas Life Missions, uh, I'm a back dock supervisor and there 
I help people um, get through their daily troubles with uh, scriptures of encouragement, and I help teach the Word to them. Uh, I could not have done this had I not studied or had the time to study the Bible while I was in prison. Uh, I've read the Bible through about three times, and uh, each time I read it through, I find something new and encouraging to try and be open-minded to read the Word, uh, see yourself in the Word, uh, be brutally honest with God, and you will find faith. Faith is, it can be the size of a mustard seed, but as God says, it will grow. And as you cultivate your faith, you will help others in their life as they see your example in Christ. I'm grateful that Jesus died for my sins. I have many. Uh, could be the chief of sinners. Uh, but I am very grateful to say that I am loved by Jesus Christ. And that's my testimony. Thank you. That's awesome. We can clap. Britt's not here, but we'll clap. <clears throat> Thanks, uh, Aaron and Ben up in the booth. Thank you to Kathy Kiesler and Sid. I think I saw Sid in the reflection, maybe. Uh, thank you all for filming those. That was Kathy's, uh, something that Kathy had done, um, and uh, just a great idea to get stories of renewal. So this is the first of six. Um, Britt's story tonight really encapsulates where we're headed. Tonight we begin a new sermon series in the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it, we encourage you to swipe or find Ruth. It's toward the front of your Bible. It's after Joshua, Judges, then Ruth. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's cool because there's Bibles in front. You can follow along there and uh, we'll have some stuff on the screen to help you. So tonight we start this six-week series on Ruth, which is a story of renewal. So each week, like I just said, we're going to be seeing stories in our community of renewal. Stories in which we see God take brokenness and make newness out of them. Ruth is a story of renewal. It's a story of how God works newness out of our brokenness. I also want to thank Kara, sidetrack, for uh, editing those videos and making them look all nice. So uh, I'm really excited for you guys to hear these stories. Brits really gets at so much we're going to see in this book of Ruth. We're going to see this kind of place in which Naomi and Ruth, these central strong women in this book, really have emptied everything, everything in their life, relationships, the, the physical toll, all of these things come crashing down and they hit a sort of rock bottom. And then uh, we see that it's not just at a, in a moment, sometimes it's over a slow burn. Brit spent 15 years in prison. Brit spent 15 years, in that, and in that 15 years, he was, like he said, able to talk brutally to God. Brutally honest with him to hash out this thing because I think God wants us to be brutally honest because we live in a brutal world. We live in a world in which brokenness is a reality. So when God is up to making newness, he's going to use the raw material of the brokenness in our lives. He's going to use the raw material of the brokenness of this world. 
Because when you come to Him, you come to Him with all the broken pieces, as we prayed in the central missional community, for someone who's hit a rock bottom, that, that we would take all those broken pieces and lay them at the feet of God. And even if we got to scream at Him to take notice, at least recognize that He might be able to do something about it. That's the first step. Coming to a place where you recognize your brokenness, laying it, pouring it down at the feet of God and saying, now what? Because I got nothing. This evening we're going to be introduced in five short verses right at the beginning of this book of Ruth. This emptying, these broken pieces one after another over a long decade of pain. And then we're going to see in the next six weeks a story of how ordinary people in ordinary ways, see how God is at work. Brokenness, as I said, sometimes is brought on by sinful choices in our lives. We create enough brokenness on our own. But also there's a brokenness that just is. Sometimes the world that's broken just happens to us. In Ruth... I want to tell you right now, before we really go any further, you're not going to see all the answers you want to see about why the brokenness happens. Ruth does not offer us a theology of suffering. Ruth is a story that does give us some glimpses at this great mystery that I think is an essential question to humanity, how is God at work in my story? See, I think one of the questions that we're told to believe growing up is the most important is this. Does God exist? Yes? This is a question that you're told is fundamental. Does God exist? Well, if you ask America, some depending on who you ask, they'd say like somewhere between 75 and 80% would say, sure, God exists. Yes, okay, whatever. But I think the more important question is not, does God exist? It's, okay, if he does exist, how on earth is he working in the world? Ruth doesn't give us a whole theology. It doesn't answer all the questions we want to answer, such as why, how, and where, and when. But it does give us a glimpse at, I think, that central question, which is, okay, how is God at work? I'll grant you for a minute that there is a God out there. But the problem is I can't see God. You know what I can see? My broken pieces. You know what I can see? A broken world. So if there is a God that I can't see, how does he deal with all this stuff I can? And Ruth is going to give us really uh, some glimpses into the answers in which God works in and through ordinary people in ordinary life. It's very rarely that God is going to intervene and just miraculously make things appear and happen. It happens sometimes, and scriptures bear witness to that. But I want to tell you, that is the exception, not the rule. So before we get into our text, I want to start to get at this question that we're going to be exploring for six weeks. How is God at work? Because if Ruth is a story of renewal, how is God renewing 
the broken pieces in my life, in this world. Ruth gives us a glimpse, but the first thing we need to see is that God works in and through ordinary people in ordinary life. There are no priests, there are no prophets, there are no supernatural miracles in this book. There is just ordinary people like you and I trying to make sense of what God is up to. And that's really hard when you consider your story and you can't see God and you don't have the vantage point that we do when we read this whole nice little story. In four chapters, in four acts, ah, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. Hey, hallelujah, amen. Our stories aren't like that. So Ruth is going to help us as ordinary people looking at these ordinary examples with extraordinary faith in an extraordinary God perhaps we'll see how to recognize how God is at work in subtle, ordinary ways. Which leads me to my second point. God works in subtle and hidden ways. When we take to him our broken pieces, Naomi will take to him her broken pieces and say, God, look at this. Pay attention to this. It's broken and I can't fix it. It's like my sweet little toddlers. Everything in their hands breaks and the first thing they do is come and find daddy what they haven't figured out yet in their short little lives is that mommy is actually better at fixing things than daddy which is another thing we'll learn in Ruth strong women man just you got to love those women don't take these gender stereotypes that dad can fix it daddy can't fix it but they come to me with their broken pieces and they say daddy fix it And they want me to, like, go out to the garage and take the chop saw that Robert Vaughn gave me and, like, where's your tools? Where's your this? I said, baby, this is a Chick-fil-A, like, Happy Meal toy. I mean, this thing is done. When it's broken, it's in the trash. They want some big, grand work. But really, that's not how life is. When we take to our Father, God, and say, how are you at work? Shouldn't you give me a bolt of lightning and tell me what to do? Shouldn't you tell me which door to go through right now? Wake me up in the middle of the night and tell me, do this. God does not work that way. When I'm in the hospital room, God, I'm laying my hands on this person. We're trusting and we're asking that you move, that you work, that you work. Sometimes he does. But how many hospital rooms have you been in? Sometimes it's gradual. Sometimes it's subtle. God, this relationship is broken. I'm taking this relationship to you. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Ruth will help us see, especially in relationships. That's a central theme in Ruth in relationships. It's going to take time and it's going to take two to tango. But that doesn't mean, even though he works in subtle and hidden ways, that we still should not bring to him our brokenness, our broken pieces. Because we'll see, third point, he is always working. Look, God works in broken places. He loves to deal with broken things. He's grieved by it, but he's always working, ever active, ever loving, and ever pushing toward a world in which all things are made new. If you're on Facebook much or you watch cable news, you think that the world is ever pushing toward the toilet. And the thing is, this world has always, can I be frank? I know there's young people in here. It's always been a bit of a toilet. 
But since the fall, since things went bad, the bad news in your Bibles in Genesis 3 that we call the fall, when all the things started swirling downhill into separation with God, separation with man, from Genesis 3 onward is a mission that God has launched to win this creation back and to say it may look like a toilet it may look like it's all swirling down in blackness but let me tell you something I am at work always I don't sleep and I am going to even in the midst of the darkness bend all of this crud not just to wipe the slate clean and start over. I'm going to work in and through this and bend it to a place where I take what's broken and make it new. That's good news. Don't listen to the radio evangelists that say he's just going to burn this thing all up. If he's burning it, he's going to purify it. He's going to bring it out the other side and say, I never wanted to throw this world away. I want to rescue it. That's good news. That's gospel. Everything in your life that's broken, he's grieved by and wants to fix. But if you brought the brokenness, he's going to work subtly and in hidden ways and give you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to what? Bring that brokenness to his feet and then God can say, yeah, I can work with that. Let's go. And little by little, he, the shepherd who leads you, watch. In Psalm 23, that famous Christian psalm. The shepherd that leads you through what? The green pastures and the still waters. Sometimes will also lead us through the valley of the shadow. But there's a crucial word in that. Through the valley of the shadow. So we drop into the story of Ruth. We see these ordinary people. And their valley is going to seem a decade or more longer. Maybe your valley of the shadow is even longer than 10 years. Or maybe you're just stepping into the valley and you don't know how long it's going to be. But we see in the first five verses of Ruth some ordinary people where the broken pieces have fallen and now the essential question for them is, okay, what now? God, how are you at work? I love what Eugene Peterson says about this book because we need to always think in this beautiful story, this perfect little short story that we have in our Bibles, we need to always remember our story, that we're just like them. We're still grasping it. God, what are you up to? Where are you in this? How are you working? What are you inviting me to? These are the questions we need to be asking, but we also need to understand that we're just ordinary folks in a story that God is actively involved in. Let's look at what Eugene Peterson, a pastor and author, translator of the message, uh, says. There are no outstanding, historically prominent figures in Ruth. No splendid kings, no charismatic judges, no fiery prophets. It is a plain story about two widows and a farmer whose lives are woven into the fabric of God's salvation through the ordinary actions of common life. He goes on and says this, No biblical story now is just a story, any more so than any person's story, because each deals with actual events and traditions in which there is a creator, a director, and a redeemer in whom ordinary persons in history get involved. 
God is on mission since the things went bad to win them and bring them back. And we are involved in that. Are we awake enough to see it? Ruth brings us into a story in which God is ever active, ever loving, and ever pushing things toward his end, toward his salvation. We just have to be awake to it, recognize our part in the story. Just a few more things by way of introduction, because we're starting this series, we're introducing this book. Before we get into the prologue, some themes that we're going to be exploring in the next six weeks I want to get out on the table are these. The first is providence. That's the fancy theological word that I've been dancing around, how God is at work in hidden and subtle ways. Our church is called Providence, yes? So that's why I chose Ruth. That's why I chose this theme. You know, we got this new logo. We'll have a new website. So, you know, here's some Providence love. Providence. God is at work in all areas of creation. In Ruth, it's so beautiful. We're going to see him at work in relationships. We're going to see him at work, glimpses in the physical realm, weather, and and these kinds of things. We're going to see him at work in the legal system. We're going to see him at work in uh, just the traditions in which uh, foreigners and widows and these people uh, are able to be provided for. God's fingerprints are throughout this book, even though God only gets maybe three mentions by name. Four chapters, maybe three mentions of his name. Some of them are not in a great light. But his fingerprints are throughout, and it's because he's ever working, ever loving, ever pushing our brokenness toward renewal. That's the first theme, providence. The second theme is faithfulness. There's another word that shows up several times in this book. Y'all ready? <clears throat> chesed. Can y'all say chesed? Yes? I'm not going to trick you that I'm some Hebrew scholar. I just know this word, and it's really fun to say. So clear your throat out. Ready? One more time. Chesed. That's a word for faithfulness, but it's really more than faithfulness. It's like a, a, a loyalty. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, like there's love mixed in on that. Um, and it's just that I'm in it to win it. Chesed. Faithfulness. We see, and uh, oh, that was the third one. So um, <laughs> I did this whole thing with chesed. I should have looked at my notes. Well, let's do faithfulness. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are all examples of incredible faithfulness to God and others, even in the most difficult circumstances. Because you know when faithfulness and loyalty matters? I mean, just think, okay, think in your life, your ordinary life, right? Man, we best friends, dog. You and me, that's it, right here. And the second you're like, hey, dude, can you help me move? Nah, man, I can't. I'm busy this week. That is not faithfulness, Yes. Think in your ordinary life, faithfulness. Even when it's hard and it sucks, you're still faithful. That's the kind of faithfulness Ruth shows us and we're going to be exploring in this. The second one that I'm doing third is closely related to that, and that is togetherness. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are all transformed through their relationships Kathy Kiesler is going to be preaching in this series, and she's going to use a phrase, I imagine, called the Blessed Alliance. And one of the things that so gripped her about this story that we've been talking about as we enter into this sermon series in Ruth is that each one of these people 
when they bounce off of one another, when they interact with one another, they actually challenge and raise each other to a level that, that is more faithful and that is more compassionate, more loving, and more strong, stronger. The togetherness that sharpens one another, that's what we see in the book of Ruth. Robin will be preaching, Robin Craddock, in this series too, and she's going to work out that togetherness, but also how God works providentially in that togetherness. All these things woven through Ruth, a story of how God is making new life, newness, out of our brokenness. Because when God works newness, In precisely the last place you'd ever think newness was possible. When God does that, then we can say, that must have been God. Because I never saw that coming. Well, that's how this story starts. A place in which newness seems not the slightest bit possible. Let's look finally at our text. We're just going to do five verses. I wanted to do a lot of that setup, a lot of that setup, but uh, the very beginning of this story shows us in five short, little, terse, unfeeling verses how impossible newness appears in this story. So let's see. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, what the author is doing, and by the way, the author is unknown. You can read a ton of pages like I did. I told Amy, I said, I read like a hundred pages this week on this introductory stuff of Ruth. And it's all these people's best guesses at who might have wrote Ruth. And then at the end, in like the conclusion paragraph of every one of these books says, but in the end, we really don't know. And I told Amy, I said, dang. So then what did I do? I read like a hundred pages on like, when was this book written? And I read like all these things and skimmed all these things about like when it could have been, when it went. And then every one of their concluding paragraphs says, yeah, but we really don't know. So I don't know what to tell you. We don't know who wrote Ruth. We don't know when it was written, but here's what we do know. Okay. It was written after the time of David, right? David and Goliath, King David. After David was born. How do we know this? Okay, Ruth is a short story that bridges the gap between, flip back in your Bible, what's that book before it? Judges. Okay, We just read verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Okay, It bridges the gap between judges and then what's the next book in Ruth? If you flip 1 Samuel. Samuel 1 and 2 is the story of King. The first king, Saul, and then David. Ruth bridges the gap. What starts with the judges, it bridges the gap and shows us, look at the end of Ruth, chapter 4, and Jesse, the father of David. It bridges the gap right there in the middle of our Bible. It goes, Joshua and Judges, this period in verse 1 of chapter 1, into, hey, it's setting the table, God at work, and ordinary people in ordinary ways to bring a great king, David. And it shows us several generations after reflecting on this story how God has been at work all along to bring a king to Israel. But now the story begins back in Ruth 1.1 in the what? The days when the judges ruled. Who are the judges? Judges were military leaders. Y'all know Samson? He was a famous judge. 
judges, there were no kings in Israel. And if you look, if you're writing anything down, you can write down Judges 17.6. It was a little snapshot of the period of the judges. He says, there was no king in the land. So then what? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When mom is away, the whatevers will play. What is it? Cats? Cats, the cats will play, yes? Another reason to look at my notes and write things down. There was no king. And this was a dark day politically for Israel. The judges, the book of Judges is a gnarly book about people who were not great leaders. But they rose to prominence because they were powerful and they kind of functioned as little mayors of these tribes in these areas. It's a dark day politically. Off to a bad start, unknown author of Ruth. Oh, but it gets worse. Look with me again. There was a what? Famine in the land. So it's a dark day politically, but it's also a dark day nationally. So people are living in such a way where they're doing whatever they want to do. They've turned their back on God. Now, in their land, there's a famine. And they assume what? God has turned his back on them. There is a situation in which we can't really come to terms with as well-fed Americans who can roll to Chipotle or McDonald's or Wendy's after this and go buy something, yes? We can't put ourselves in a place where there's been no rain for months at a time, and rain means crops. And by the way, even if you had crops, you've got to cultivate them, so you've got to hope you've got a good harvest, so then you can get these crops to then thresh them, take them, turn them into edible grain, and then take that grain and then bake that grain, and then you might want to save some of it because you don't know if you'll have your daily bread tomorrow. This is a terrible situation politically where people have turned their back on God and when anything like this drought happens, it's not commented here in Ruth, but when anything like this happens, people think, ah, God has turned his back on us. He shut up the reins. Now, some people think when you're reading Ruth, when you see this, you say, ah, God is angry. God has cursed them because they've lived so miserably in judges. That may be. But you know what? It may not have been. The author of Ruth doesn't seem to care so much with the, why did this happen? The author of Ruth says, this has happened. So again, you know what matters less in our lives when famines and dark times comes? Asking the question, why God? Because guess what? You frankly will never know. Maybe you know sometimes because some choices that you create are A causes B. But when there's a famine in the land and all you see around you are circumstances to the contrary that God is loving, God is working, it's not so much to ask why, it's okay, what now? What now? Ruth doesn't give us the answers as to why things are so bad, but they tell us a little bit of a glimpse as the what next question. You with me? So a man, we're introduced to a man, okay? Don't get too cozy with this man. Spoiler alert, it's not going to go well for him. It's already bad, it's going to get worse. And then when it's worse, guess what? It's going to get worser, okay? 
Look at verse 1 at the end. So a man from Bethlehem. Okay, Bethlehem, y'all know that place, right? That's up. Imagine I've got the Dead Sea right here. Bethlehem is up here, okay? Now, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, okay? Bethlehem's up here. Here's the Dead Sea. They're going to hook around, cross a river, and come all the way down to Moab, which is just to the east of the Dead Sea. Now, Moving is annoying, yes? I already joked about the guy who didn't want to help his buddy, his faithful, loyal friend move. Moving is annoying for us today, yes? I'm still like getting forwarded mail, and I've moved like five months ago from Dallas to Richardson, and it's obnoxious. My library card has just expired, and that bums me out. But you know what? Moving then rarely happened because it was no mere annoyance. When you're moving your family, not only is the physical journey arduous, but what it means is you're saying, I'm leaving all of my plan B emergency family and contacts and support. I'm leaving all of my familial and social support. I'm also leaving my God. Because... Even for followers of Yahweh, the God we know, the Father of Jesus, even to leave Israel means that you are cut off from His community, His places of worship, His priests, His life that is lived in accordance to the law. Not only are you leaving your support, you're leaving your entire religious life. Because every of these other countries had their little God, their tribal God. So you're not just getting to know a few new little streets and where's my Kroger at. You are in a place where you're completely isolated. People didn't move then. In order for them to move, it had to be really, really bad. Well, unfortunately, it gets worse. They go to Moab, and they were settling for a good while because they had probably heard, hey, there's food there. And the irony is Bethlehem means house of bread. But they moved because there is no bread left. And they go to this place, Moab, which has enjoyed a pretty sketchy history with God's people, Israel. But we'll get to that more in a minute. Verse 2. This man that we had just been introduced to from Bethlehem, his name was Elimelech. Say Elimelech. Get your tongue worked out. Oh, that was beautiful. Just seeing if you're still awake. We're only in verse 2, and I thought I'd be done by now. I'm only half joking. Um, His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephathrites from Bethlehem. That's probably that clan, that tribe from Bethlehem, Judah. That's their city, their clan, their city, their country, or their state zip code. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, even though we've been introduced to the man, we've also been introduced to who? The woman. But she's not just a woman, she's Naomi. And make no mistake, this is Naomi's story. This is not the man's story. They went to Moab. They lived there. Now Elimelech, who's not just the man or Elimelech from Bethlehem, it's Naomi's husband, what? Died. And Naomi was left with her two 
sons. So again, we don't grasp how painful and difficult it was to relocate and move. We also don't grasp how painful it is to lose your husband if you are Naomi. Because husbands in a culture that was dominated by men, much more so than you may surmise our culture is, this is a patriarchal culture in which your only hope of provision and protection was man. All of a sudden, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies and she was left. She was left. All she had left in this world were her two sons. Again, you know what we don't get answers to? Why did this happen? We don't know. But I think the only question resonating in Naomi is, are you kidding me? We pack up our stuff. My family's long gone. He drags us across the river. We go down to this country. Oh, we may have a little bit of food now, but I don't have a husband. What do I do now? God, where are you? Understand that moving wasn't just driving down the street. This is a slow burn of bad to worse. And she's left now as a single parent. And she's saying, hopefully we can carry on. Because there's no greater tragedy in Israel or any of the tribal cultures in Ruth's day. There's no greater tragedy than your family ceasing to exist. Okay? There's no greater tragedy than your family line, your family name being wiped off the face of the map. This is a broken piece. The broken piece that we need to hold on to. Because Naomi's going to lay it at God's feet we're going to see next week. And in a few weeks to come, we're going to see what God does with that broken piece. Because he will not allow this family to be wiped off the map. But it was sure threatened. Look with me in verse 4. These two sons, she's left with her two sons. We don't know how old, but they eventually marry Moabite women. Now, Moab is a, is a, I told you, a little bit of a sketchy relationship. So Naomi, uh, you might think, would have a little bit of red flags when they bring home some Moabite women. Because Moabites worshipped a different god, yes? Because they're a different people, different culture. Their god was called Chemosh. They were not allowed in Jewish law. They came from Bethlehem, which is part of Judah, which is Jewish. They weren't allowed to worship together. If you're writing down anything, you can write down Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 6. Moab gets some mention in the law of Moses that says they're not permitted in the assembly of Israel. And they have a shaky history with Israel, we see in Numbers 22 to 24, if you're writing things down. But they married these Moabite women, which you might think, ah, that's some red flags. Can't trust them Moabite women. But you know what I think? I bet you Naomi welcomed these women, even though they're foreign, even though they worship other gods, because it was probably a little bit of balm to her broken heart because she feared survival. Not just because she'll, it's not just, oh, I get to have some grandkids. Having grandkids, she hoped, would rescue them because surely it can't get any worse. Surely we can carry on. Well, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. The book's named Ruth, but this is still Naomi's story. We'll talk about Ruth more next week. After they had lived there about 10 years, 
ah, okay, there's something going on here. There's no more mention of the family unit growing larger. So we've got Naomi, we've got her two sons, we've got Orpah and Ruth, and then verse 5 starts and says, Oh, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without. So again, she was left. Look at verse 3. She was left with her two sons, but now, two short verses later, she was left without her two sons and her husband. She was deprived. They'd been there for 10 years, and what we need to see a subtle clue here is no grandchildren. So she goes from being single parent, two kids, to now having two daughters-in-law, no grandkids. It's still a shaky proposition. They're in a new place with new gods, new customs, and no support. Naomi couldn't go get a job in a patriarchal culture. No, she couldn't be protected from these new people. But she also doesn't have grandkids. And so what we have, it says Naomi was left without. She was deprived. We have all in, the, in between the lines of verse 5, we have this single parent. We have women who, for whatever reason, have not given or had kids. And we've got a widow. We have a culture that's opposed to this poor family. We have a culture that prevented them from carrying on and having a life for themselves. It went from bad to worse to much, much worse. Ten years of brokenness and suffering laid out clinically in five verses. Y'all heard of a twist ending. This is a twist beginning. This is one of those places like you look at and you say, this story is going to stink. But what it's setting up is this. Not a love story like you've heard maybe your whole life in Bible studies in Sunday school. It's not just a love story. It's so much more than that. Because yes, there are a, a, a couple that's, that's brought from this. Yes, there is a love in this story. But that love points, points to something so much deeper. And it points to how God can renew and bring people back from the brink. It's not just a love story. It's a story of renewal. So what do we know in our surprise beginning? That Naomi is deprived. She's emptied. Next week, she's going to lay it all out before God and say, I'm emptied. I'm done. God has surely done this. She's convinced this is the end of her story. What we don't know again is why. But we do Wait with expectation to see what's going to unfold and how God is at work. Because for us, the question is not so important the why, but it's the how, God, are you at work? How are you going to do something? What, God, might you form in me? Think back to Britt's story. You know when God got his attention? In the back of a squad car. You know when he began to walk with God and sort out how he's at work in his ordinary life? In a jail cell. Sometimes you bring brokenness onto yourself. Sometimes brokenness lands on you. But the central question is not why, it's what? 
Am I going to trust my God enough to lay out the broken pieces and hash it out with Him? Am I going to be able to lay it out there? And am I going to be able to walk with Him even through the valley? Because you know what? Ruth will feature in the genealogy, the record of history and story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And Jesus is someone who laid it all out before God in a garden. And he said, this is terrible. Is there any other thing we can do here? I've been rejected. I'm about to be rejected by my best friends. Things look pretty bad. Is there any other way? And he says, well, I guess I'm going to have to go through the valley. But Jesus models for us, and we're going to see this in the story of Ruth, how to be faithful to God, to trust Him, to walk with Him, even through the darkest valley, because for the joy set before Him, the writer of Hebrews says, He endured the cross, He endured the valley, He endured the worst kind of brokenness and separation you can imagine. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. For the trust that God would raise him, that God would renew him. Could we trust that we lay all the broken pieces out, and maybe not in our time, maybe not in our way, but someday, somehow, I promise you, he will use the broken pieces and he will form them and shape them into something more beautiful than we could have ever imagined if we planted ourselves. Because that's the hope we have as Christians That even when we sow our bodies in death, the hope is not that the Spirit will just sit on a cloud and play a harp. You know this, church. He will even take our bodies that are decaying, broken pieces, and He won't even waste that. Ruth gives us a glimpse at the truth of all the scriptures that God is bending back and not wasting your brokenness, not wasting your pain, but He's present with you. He's with you. And next week we're going to talk about what happens when he doesn't answer my prayer the way I want right now. And I won't give you satisfactory answers, but I'm going to make a stab at it. Because I think it's an open wound in our church that we've been exploring or dancing around for years. Why does God do this and not that? Why does God do it now and not then? Ruth doesn't give us all the answers, but it gives us enough of a glimpse of God who won't leave you. And who will never run out of what you need when you need it. And this is the story we invite you to. The story we invite you to trust and wait. Because even when all the world is falling apart, God and His love is rock solid and He's at work. So I hope you'll be around to hear more stories of renewal from our church. And also a story of renewal for Naomi, Ruth, and a man, Boaz, that we'll meet. Let's pray. Father, sometimes I think we're just walking around grasping at straws. We wonder where you're at when we're washing dishes. We wonder where you're at when we're on the phone in a difficult conversation. We wonder where you're at when we lie down at night and we start to let some of those thoughts and voices in. Thoughts that want to bear fruit of anxiety and bitterness, and depression. We wonder why you won't just take them away. So Lord, would you just 
Help us see that you're with us. Will you help us see that maybe a lot of what we're carrying we can actually lay down? Or that a lot of what we're carrying is just bogus. It's junk. It doesn't need to just be thrown down. It needs to be tossed so far away from us. So Lord, when it tries to make its way back, would you take us gently by the hand and lead us out of that place, lead us far away from them, and bring us to a green place, a high place, high above the darkness and bitterness and pain in this world, the pain of our past. Would you take us to a place where we can see with fresh eyes that you are rock solid, you are always with us, you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And would we even silence enough of the junk in our lives to hear the voice of Jesus that spoke to his dearest friends who would even abandon him, the words... In this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Remind us that you did that, Jesus, through the pain and agony and brokenness of a cross, but that you saw the other side, and we who hope in you will see it too. So until that day, Lord, whether we're walking with you in the green places or the dark places, when we see you, and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I read the benediction, these are great ways to say a prayer in your heart and a blessing for the rest of your week. So as I read, if you'll silently follow along as a prayer to God. We have heard of your wondrous power, the ways in which you make newness, the ways in which you defeat death, the ways in which you give life. We trust you in the night while we sleep. We rise early in the morn to find you alert, active, engaged. You dazzle us day and night. Yet we notice the place where you are curbed, you are fringed, you are held. Your newness we do not see, so we wait. Keep us easy at night in our wait. Keep us vigilant in day while we wait. Keep our wait fixed on you, you alone, you and none other, and we will rejoice. Amen. Go in peace.